Anybody, anybody like to include anybody in our prayers tonight? I have another one. Well, you are loaded. You are carrying a lot. Priscilla, Hello. how are you? Thank you. And Alec. Alec Cullen. A-L-C. Anybody else? Would anybody else like to include anybody in our prayers? I hope you all are praying for Suzanne and me. Truly, truly. I'm always grateful for prayers. Always grateful. Okay. Let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. We would not be here except for the free gift. Um, something created out of your love that wasn't there before. And we picked us up in our own lives, in our own families, um, bringing life into the world and trying to offer ourselves as free gifts in what we do. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that. That's hard to put ourselves away, to genuinely give ourselves. There's, there's so much so often in the way. Selfishness, um, our pride. Strengthen us um, to put that away so that we can be with you and bring you to all that we do. Ask a special prayer, a grace for um, um, people who are struggling. Amy, Carrie particularly, um, Ken and Helen, Eleanor's parents, Dan, Maeve, um, receive her into your kingdom. You've asked already, please pardon her sins. Watch over, um, this is Eleanor, your nephew. Yes. Eleanor's nephew, Alec. Um, how old is he, I'm sorry. He's um, 28. 28. Um, death is a part of life. We, we have to make a place for it. When we don't show something shaky in us, help him to make a place for this, to see this as an occasion for turning to you. We trust in you. We all owe you a life. Um, help us to give our own up, um, um, to see that there is some good in the deaths of those around us and our own. It's one of the things we're learning in the reading that we do. Help us to make it real in our lives. Um, I ask a blessing on the candidates um, and on our country. We are in sore need. Um, um, I, I may not be speaking for everybody, but let me say it anyway. I think we're in a situation um, in which what we're facing is the lesser of evils. 
Um, help us to line them up, to put away the black-white mindsets that, um, that so often keep us from um, making good decisions. So much of our lives are not black and white at all. Um, help us to commit ourselves, um, help our country um, do what it can to, um, to choose a good leader. And whoever is chosen, let that person um, give him or herself completely um, to the task of recovering our good as a people. Um, help us to open ourselves to this reading, to give ourselves to it, um, to learn, um, to receive the wisdom that has been here from the beginning of our civilization and put it to work in our own lives. We ask all of this in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, I think I thought I had it on before, but maybe not. Okay, let's do. We're going to do the poem for tonight. Will be Hopkins again. I'm going to reread the Windhover. Um, you're probably getting tired of this poem. I I've read it so many times. Um, it, it, it goes to something I'm going to say on the Odyssey and, I, um, and that I mentioned last week, so I'd like to pick it up again. This notion that the physical world is not um, just matter, as the scientific world puts it. Um, there are other ways of looking at things in the world. Um, one of them seems to me the the, the most sound and and one we've lost is by St. Thomas who believed that um, love was present in everything in creation. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But Anyway, we, um, we've read the Windhover before and you remember if, if, if you were here when we read it, it's, a, it's Hopkins' poem about his experience in the morning when he went out in the morning and, and saw this Windhover catch the wind and in that moment of mastering the wind where he hovers just for a second it's like he he masters it all of these powers in the bird are gathered they're buckled and remember buckle has two meanings it means to to gather together like our belt to pull things together but it also means to buckle collapse and in that moment of mastery he he sees that there's a a participation on the part of the bird in Christ's crucifixion, his mastery at that moment before he collapses and, um, and redemption is given to man. There, in that moment of, of the bird's mastery in nature, there is this splendor, this beauty that Hopkins um, tries to recreate for us. That's the octave. Remember, he's writing in the Italian sonnet. The, the Italian sonnet consists of an octave, eight lines, rhyming lines, and followed by a sestet. And traditionally in the Italian sonnet, the octave was used to render an experience immediately, just the way it happened. So that we're actually taken back in, into the world of experiences. And the set sestet is a reflection on it. it steps outside of the experience to, to offer thoughts about it, to learn something from it. 
And in the sestet, he says, no wonder. There's no wonder in this stuff. It's, it's ordinary. It's all around us. Um, and he gives us his examples, a farmer working his, tilling his land. And if you've, if you've ever watched the plow work earth, you, or, or, or gardener, I mean, Suzanne gardens all the time. And if you watch, if you watch the soil change, you see it, it, it um, changing from a clay thick uh, material to something soft and silted and actually shining. That's his, that's his description of it. Um, sheer plod, the sheer effort of working at it, a farmer laboring. It could be anybody. It could be a man at his work. It could be a farmer. It could be somebody at their IBM office. Sheer plod makes plow down Sicilian shine. That out of that work, if a person gives himself to the work, is produced this, this shining soil, the soil that's rich to produce crops, because we know then it will be used for a harvest. And then he ends with that description of the fire. You know when a fire first stars, starts, it's in a blazing rage, but it always reaches a point where just before it goes out, the, the, the um, embers, the, what's the word, the, the, the wood as it begins to break apart, um, begins to glow. So that intense light gives way to this radiant beauty. And once again, in, in the death of this material as it burns itself out, he sees once again um, a participation, something signifying um, the crucifixion of Christ. All things in nature are going to die. All of us are going to our death. We're all dying right now. And presumably out of that death, hopefully out of that death, will come some kind of light. So the wind hover. And then the, the, the ones that I really wanted to read tonight were the, was the, um, the uh, as Kingfishers Catch Fire. And in this poem, what he does is recount all of these things in such a way to describe them that we see that in whatever it is they're doing, what's peculiar to them, a kingfisher, a dragonfly, a stone tumbling down a well, um, the bell tolling, whatever is going on, it can be anything. That thing is speaking its being. That's what I said last week, and that's why I picked this poem. That everything in nature means. Everything in nature has a self. I'll come back to that in a second. But this is one of the most beautiful poems that is an expression of that fact for the poet. Um, and, and like the um, Windhover, this one has the same sort of a form, an, an octave and a sestet. In the sestet, once again, Hopkins reflects on his experiences of these things, a bird, a fish, a stone tumbling down a well, and then says that all of these things are fulfilling their nature. And, and by the way, that's not a denial of free will. Each thing in nature has a nature, an end. We all have a destiny. We're human beings. We were meant to fulfill that end, whatever it is, as humans. And, and for each one of us, it, it may take a different form, but we all have an end. And what he finds in all of these things is some semblance of Christ. That Christ is visible in some way because he was the one who made everything in creation. 
So we'll see that at the end. So let me read both of these poems. The Wind Tower, Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. Notice how that stops. The whole rush of that line, pushing every word in front of it, and then stopping. Here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plowed down cillion shine, and blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash pulled from me. No wonder it's all around us if we would open our eyes. As kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. Each thing is doing what it does, according to its nature, whatever it is. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells, selves, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, but keeps all his goings graces acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limb and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. We find him everywhere in work. Um, okay, so do I wait on this? I'm going to wait. I'm going to pick this up when I come here. But okay. So, let's review just for a few minutes. We have got to get out of here early tonight. Because we've got to get home to the television. The debate. Or whatever we're going to call it. I don't know if that word does any justice to it. Okay, we've been talking about the epic as prophetic. I want to add a term to all the terms that I've been using to describe the epic up to this point. Prophetic. It's a word. It's a divine word. Remember the poet calls on the help of the goddess Calliope to tell this story. So over and over again I've made the point it's a divine word, it's a divine perspective. That through the poet, a divine perspective enters our world so that we can see the ways the gods are 
involved in the affairs of men. That's a constant with the epics. Um, the epic is always about a founding. We've said that. And we've seen now, we'll see it again here, that nobody in the epic, none of the characters in the epic, see what's going on. The poet is the only one who does. So the question is whether his audience, those who hear him, who, and remember it's a song, so there has to be a beauty in hearing it. It would be something akin to, well, not quite I mean, sitting down to a Bach you know, cantata or, a, or a, something like that, but maybe in church hearing a choir sing beautifully and being moved by it. The audience would hear the poet sing the story and be moved by the story and the music of it. And... Um, the question that I've been asking is, since nobody in the book is aware of, of the founding that's taking place, are the readers, are the audience? Um, how well do they listen? How well do they see? How well do we see? How well do we listen? Do we see the changes that are taking place? Are we aware of what happened with Achilles? Do we understand the, the, the profound significance of what happens in the turn in that book, the Peripatia, right? You all know what that means, the peripatia, the turn, and the recognition that takes place there. The, the peripatias, the turn, the anagnorisis, the, 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 the turn. Um, when somebody turns his life around and goes, Achilles reaches that point where he says, I've let everybody down, um, I let Patroclus down, and he accepts his death and goes back into the world. So there's a, a radical change in him and that change is reflected in what happens in the plot, and we saw that. The whole ending of the book reverses what, what was set in motion in the beginning. So, We're going to find the same sort of thing going on here, very different context, but a similar kind of action. The word that I want to throw in with the other descriptions I used of the epic is anti-romantic. We're going to see this more clearly, I think, in Odysseus's stories when he tells the stories and in his own actions when we put them all together. What do I mean by anti-romantic? What I mean by anti-romantic is, let me come at this a couple of ways. The romantic temperament, certainly after the romantic period in the 18th century, 18th, 19th century, the romantic temperament tends to be associated with unrest and change always wanting more. If you look at the Romantic poets and if you, if you line them up with what happened um, in the 18th century, you see two revolutions that are major revolutions historically when, when you look at the history of man, the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and lots of them associated with the artists of that time, Beethoven and, and um, Blake and, and um, Shelley. The, the precursors of that romantic movement really come earlier. They're Rousseau, I think genuinely in some ways Rousseau and um, Locke and Hobbes. But, but um, generally by romantic we mean longing for more, um, expecting more, and moving towards it. So there's an element of unrest in the romantic temperament. The classical temperament, the, the one that, that we're involved with right now with the works of Homer is anti-romantic in the sense that the classical temperament 
begins with some understanding of the importance of restraint, of human limitations. We saw that really clearly in the Iliad. We, we could call Hector the prototype, the ancestor of all romantics. Yeah, I wish I could be as a god. Always wanting to exceed limits, do more, to be great. Achilles is an exemplar of, of um, the classical temperament, accepting his limits. Once he does, nobody can stop him. That's the great paradox of that. When, so long as we keep attempting to try to be something more than human, we lose some glory that's peculiar to us as humans. I've been trying to make that point all along, that the God made us in his image. After the fall, our image is tarnished. The Protestant view of our fall is, is that the fall was complete. The effects of the fall are complete, that we're corrupted, depraved. We've lost our free will. That's a very dark, pessimistic belief, and it permeates our world. The Catholic view is very different. It's, it's, you can't destroy God's essence, what he made in essence. It can be wounded. We're wounded. We call that wound concupiscence, but it's not destroyed. Our free will is intact. Um, we know from Dante our free will is insufficient to get us to heaven. We cannot get to heaven. But that, that doesn't keep us from being virtuous or good. We, can, we saw that in, in those of you who are here with the Divine Comedy. Remember, Aristotle and Plano are in hell. They're great, great pagans. They're virtuous men, but they're virtuous res with respect to the natural order. With respect to the natural order, they did great things. But there's nothing they could have ever done on, them own, on their own to merit heaven. For that requires a supernatural grace. So the classical temper was, um, was rested on this notion of human limitations, that there's a measure to what man does. We're going to see this over and over and over and over again in Odysseus. The fact that he's called long-suffering Odysseus is a sign of it. He's never going to have a black-white. Things will never be clear one way or another. When, and, and we'll see as he goes through, particularly one adventure, I'll just give you as an example, but you can, you can see it's true of all of them. When he goes through the straits of Skill and Charybdis, he knows he's going to lose men. The question is, which is going to be less? The lesser of two evils. The church has put out a pamphlet talking about the lesser of two evils in our election. The, one of the things we have that Homer's showing us is that we have to resist this black-white temptation to make everything um, simple in terms of black and white. A lot of people don't want to vote in this election because they're going to feel tarnished whichever way they go. I mean, that's an indication of that romantic temperament, that, that you want to be all good, and if you can't be all good, you're not going to do anything. You know, you're going to avoid it. But what, we see, I mean, what we're learning from Odysseus is there's nothing he does that isn't going to involve him in suffering. Because there are no black-white. We're in a fallen world. That's the nature of the fall. It's left us with that condition. To keep expecting more, in some ways, is to refuse to accept the nature of things here. Father Flynn keeps talking constantly about, I mean, these homilies, he'll say, that's the way it is. You know, he says that over and over again. To keep expecting more is to be a little bit foolish. It's, we're, it's not going to yield that for us. So the, the, the Iliad was implicitly anti-romantic. I didn't bring it up then because we don't associate that term with a war epic. We do with love. This is about a man and a woman. 
a man returning to his wife. So I want to introduce that term here because it really accurately describes the nature of Odysseus's struggles and the nature of their marriage. Okay? We can call it realistic, if you want. Some people would call it classical Christian, I mean, looking forward. The classical notion had this, and we saw it everywhere, we're going to see it everywhere in the Odyssey, that humans owe something to the gods. They should give things back. They're constantly, you know, when, when Ptolemyx goes to visit Nestor and Pilots and then he goes to visit Sparta, they're all involved in ceremonies. They're constantly worshiping the gods, making sacrifices to the gods. They're trying to give back as a way of expressing their gratitude for what they've received. So that's very typical of the ancient pagan world. So the the Odyssey is anti-romantic in the sense that it um, it doesn't downplay the existence of evil in the world. Evil is there. Humans are going to suffer from it. The question is, how do we deal with it? And Odysseus is Homer's example of a man who deals with it in the way that we should deal with it. I think that's what he's showing us. Because what we see in the people around him who deal with it differently is destruction, failure, collapse, disorders. Um, so it, in Odysseus, he's giving us a figure like Achilles in war. This is a man who shows us how to, how to live in a world that's full of dangers. He's the prudent man, the long-enduring man. He knows what to do under the different circumstances, how to get through, how to return home, how to bring order to his home when, every, when all the other homes are around him are in collapse. The Logos. Um, we've been talking about the Logos, that there is this intelligibility present in everything in creation, that God is present. We're, we're not in a Christian world, and I want to be careful here, and I want to make claims for Homer um, that, that aren't warranted, but, but it, it's important to realize that. The, Homer had this view, the ancient Greeks had this view, that all of nature was animated by the gods. Remember when we were in the Iliad and, and Achilles received the news, or Thetis received the news that Patroclus had died? The Nereids, the nymphs in the ocean, began their lamentation. When Menelaus, when, when Telemachus visits Menelaus, Menelaus will tell them the story of the old man of the sea. That the Greeks had this notion that nature was full of personality. The gods were there. This is so important. It's going to have a, a very important bearing on what happens when Odysseus gets home. We're not in a Christian world, but I wanted to introduce this because we don't have that view in a scientific way. We don't look at nature that way at all today. We look at it very differently. But it's important to remember that in the Greek world, the gods were in nature. We know that. They inhabited the trees, the, the ponds, the seas, the ocean, the clouds the planets. Um, I want to I um, go forward. This, I mean, I, this is making a jump, but to, to see if I can help reinforce this notion because it's so alien to our way of thinking. We saw in this Hopkins poem that everything in nature has a self. We tend to look at things as objects. 
We've already seen the tendency in human beings to objectify each other. We saw that very strongly in Iliad. Men tend to look at women as objects. Yeah, they treated them as booty. And, and men treated each other as booty. Killing another man was as much a way of getting his possessions so that they could um, enhance your own stature. Yeah? So a man was little more than an object um, to be killed so that your own stature as a human being could be enhanced. Achilles is breaking from that whole, he's shattering that way of looking at things. What we're going to see in the Odyssey is that there's going to be a, a pretty serious critique of women and the way women objectify men, the way they use them. So we're going to, Homer's making his critique, I think, complete. But the point I want to emphasize here is that, is that um, there is this notion on the part of the Greeks that, that each thing had a self, a nereid, the old man in the sea, a, a god. Um, one of the one of the parishioners in the last class on Friday morning um, asked the question, "Why was it when Telemachus and Pisistratus, the um, Nestor's son, came to um, Menelaus's house, or when when um, Tel Telemachus arrived at at Nestor's house, they were always received and bathed and fed before anybody asked them who they were." And you, you, if you're reading, you know that when Odysseus comes to the Cyclops cave, even the Cyclops ask, but he doesn't. This is a real irony. He doesn't wine and dine him. He uses Odysseus's men to feed himself. I mean, he completely inverts the, the rights of hospitality. The reason that was so is because the, Greek, because the Greeks believed that, that the gods were, in, were in, um, invested in nature. They were present in nature. You had to welcome somebody into your house without asking. You bathed them and fed them because that person could have been a god. I remember I had a conversation with um, Father John Roberts a couple of years ago when, when we had dinner together, and, and I was making the point that I thought the Greeks were actually in a better position to receive Christ. I mean, this isn't God's providence. I mean, obviously, God had other things in mind. But it was a way of making a point that the Greeks were in a way to better receive Christ than the Jews because the Greeks had this notion that somebody could appear as a god. Whereas if you know the Greeks, I mean the Jews, if you look at the, at the, um, the ark, they would not allow an image to be put in that because to give an image of God was to desecrate or, or blaspheme his character. That images would degrade him. And think about it. Christ came, and he wasn't recognized. He wasn't seen. Think about the difference between that Jewish way of looking at the world and the Greek world. The Greeks knew that any person coming into your house could be a god, so you had to be careful of what you did. But one of the ways that the, that, that the church expounded immensely was because of the way that the Greek world worked. Say again? One of the reasons Christianity expanded, it grew so fast and it grew in different right. ways, is because they replaced a lot of the pagan gods and pagan holidays with saints. Yep. So you had, the, you know, I mean, you have the yep. Virgin Mary, you have the saint of, you know, the patron saint of the dog, the patron, you know, whatever. Yep. And they used to have the god of wine, the god of this, the yep. god of everything. Yep. It was a, so that, yep. that, that was already in place. Yep. Yep. Thought. The analogies were in place, yeah. Mm -hmm. Dionysus, the, or, or, and Her Heracles. 
are, are almost prototypes of Christ's coming. If you look, I don't want to go there, but if you look back at those myths, yeah. Um, the, the point that I wanted to make here, just to point forward, because lo- if we don't do this, I'm not sure we'll do it later, and I really want you to have it. Take a look at this article by, by St. Thomas that I gave you guys. According to St. Thomas, I, this is getting ahead, and I know this, so pardon me for this digression here, but I'm not sure I can fit it in later, and I really want you guys to have this. Yep, before we go forward. Listen to this. According to St. Thomas, the first movement of everything in creation is God's love. That should be self-evident, isn't it? For anybody who's believing. According to St. Thomas, the natural end of love is good. We direct our wills towards something, a piece of cake, a steak, glass of wine, um, a car, a house, I mean, let it be. Ultimately, the ultimate good is God because he will answer every desire, yeah? So the the ultimate good that we long for is God. Within God himself, the Father, when he conceived of himself, when he, when he reflected on himself, he conceived, the, the conception of himself was the idea of himself, the image of himself. What's the image of himself? When he conceives of himself? Christ. When he sees that good, what's the nature of his will directed at that good? Love. So already in the Trinity, we've got a, what's the word? We've got an anticipation of creation. That what God did with creation is, our, is an extension of what happens in the Trinity. God conceives of himself. He loves that. The love between them is the spirit, and we've got the Trinity. Um, but so St. Thomas says, the first motion of all things. By the way, and, and this is going to go to this question of free will, and it's, it's in all these books. The first cause of everything is, is God. The first initiative in all things is God. We wouldn't be here without him, right? But within, our, within the realm of secondary causes, a world of contingency, the world that we live in, we have an initiative. Or we, at least we believe that. The Protestant doesn't. The Protestant believes we're, we have no free will. We're without it. I believe that notion has infected most of us more than we realize. But, so God is the first cause. We live in a world of secondary causes in which contingencies can take place. That's, that's a reflection of how important it is for us to keep our free wills, that he's created the world that way so that we can choose and act and learn and grow and change. And but the first motion of all things was love, and that love was directed towards the good. And all things who were created by that God, the first motion of all of those things is love. So. When a, when a sunflower, when the sun moves across the sky and a sunflower is in a pot, what does the sunflower do? It moves with the sun. Why? Because that's the end of its life. It takes life from that. It, that's its good. When a wolf hunts down a, a rabbit, he's not evil. He's trying to feed himself and his young. He's, that's a good. So everything in nature, according to Thomas, is moved by love. All things that's the way he would explain things. And it's not because he didn't understand gravity or physics, because he did. He probably understood physics better than most physicists today. 
Um, is that clear? So an apple, a tree, an animal, it doesn't matter. If God made all things and our God is a God of love, then that love is vested. Thomas would have called that an appetite, desire. We call it forces. You know, electricity or forces. or We abstract from it. Here's what Thomas says, and the reason I'm reading this, I mean, because I want to, I want to try to underline this notion that all things in nature are subjects. Each, each leaf is a subject in its own right. We look at it as an object, but it's a thing with its own life within itself. I mean, keep Hopkins' poem in mind for a minute. Remember the Kingfisher, the stone? This is really- I don't know if you all picked this up, but as tumbled over rims and randy wells, the stones are, you know, are singing out their name. Each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow, swung finds tongue. If you know a bell, what's that round thing at the end called? It's called a tongue. That's its actual name. The, you know, if you look at a bell, the round, the lip of it is called a, the, and the tongue, I think the tongue hits that lip. So we actually use the word, it's called a tongue, it speaks. And Hopkins playing with that, that each thing in nature speaks itself, whatever it is. It's a self. We tend to objectify everything, we look at things and make them objects. Things, and we do that with human persons. But isn't that trying to personify things? I mean, isn't that trying to take, oh, this table now has emotion and love and everything? I mean, that's a, that's a little crap. Let me, <laughs> let me, I mean, it's let me hold off, let me, let me hold off, I know, because that's too... Right now, what I want to do is offer a medieval way that goes back to a classical way that's foreign to us without getting into, okay. without discussing it right now. I, I hope to, I'm, I'm aiming to, to, to end this early so that we can take some time. So if you could hold it. Um, take a look at Thomas's um, question and answer. This is on his treatise on the passions, on love, where he talks about love and what love, love is. When he gives his answer to the questions that he asks above whether love is in the concupiscible power, um, he says um, that love is in the concupiscible power. And then he says this, I answer that. Love is something pertaining to the appetite. Now remember, love is a motion towards the, that's what love is. Love is a motion towards the good. We call this an appetite. And this is going to bear directly on what we're, where we're going with the Odyssey. So if you'll just... Be patient with me for a second. Love is something pertaining to the appetite, since good is the object of both. Wherefore, love differs according to the difference of appetites, for there is an appetite which arises from an apprehension existing not in the subject of the appetite, but in some other, and this is called the natural appetite. Because natural things seek what is suitable to them according to their nature by reason of an apprehension which is not in them, but in the author of their nature. He gives a citation. There is another appetite arising from an apprehension in the subject of the appetite, but from necessity and not from free will, such is in irrational animus, the sensitive appetite, which, however, in man has a certain share of liberty insofar as it obeys reason. Again, there's another appetite following freely from an apprehension in the subject of the appetite, and this is the rational or intellectual appetite, which is called the will. I'm going to come back over this when we do Shakespeare. Um, and, it, and I'll clear it up some. But what he's saying basically is 
There, there are things in the vegetative world, there are things in the animal world, and there are things in the human world. They all move according to a power of apprehension, the mind, the intellect, because it's what directs the appetite, right? If, if, we, all, if we were all thirsty on a desert and we came to a body of water, and next to the body of water there were two signs, one of them said poison, no, let's, let's say one sign. There was a body of water. And we came there, and there was a sign there saying poison. What would we do? Let the other person drink for it. <laughs> How thirsty you Not drink it. You would? No. I wonder if you'd keep going. But anyway, you, the mind would say, don't drink. I mean, hopefully we keep going and looking because there might be another. But that's just another way of saying how much the intellect guides our, our appetites, directs them. We look at a piece of cake, and we want it. But at some point, the mind has to come into play and say, should I eat this cake? Have I been eating too many sweets? Am I getting too heavy? Or is it okay? Or... That never comes into play. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for you. <laughs> so, the, so there's an apprehensive power connected with the appetites in the soul. Okay? In man, they're related because, as I've said before, reason and our wills are inseparable in humans. Right? The, the presence of our mind implies free choice. And the fact that we have free choice implies an intellect. Why else would we have it? Because we, we have to think about the choices we make. In, in animals, there's a sensitive appetite, um, but the apprehensive power is, um, is present from necessity. Animals act out of instinct. They don't have free will. Okay. In vegetative life, there's an appetite in all things. A sunflower, a tree grows, you, a bush grows, a flower grows, whatever, whatever you're thinking about. But he says the appetite there does not exist in the thing itself, but in its author who created it. Because that apprehensive power is, impre is present by the way that author made it. <coughs> Because natural things seek what's suitable to them according to their name, by reason of an apprehension which is not in them but the, in the author of their nature. So the way that God has made things, because all things have an order and purpose, is evidence of the existence of an apprehensive power. Not in those things, because they don't have a measure of free will, but in their author, their creator. Okay? So St. Thomas said, the word that he used in Latin is, was suppositum, suppositum, suppositum. That each thing is a subject in its own right. The question is, in our abstracting powers of mind, can we ever enter into that life of another as a subject? And I hope the difficulty is that clear. One of the claims that I'm going to make in this book, The Odyssey, that, I, that we couldn't make because in the Iliad, because the Iliad is about a person, an individual, is that Odysseus and, and um, Penelope are different in their marriages um, <coughs> because they each have a story. They're very different. But when they come together at the end, it's, it, in some sense, it's, it's a reconciliation, a, a union of two people who are completely different. Both, neither of whom sees the other as an object. That they enter into something, and in that moment something's happened. We have to wait to see what that is. I want to wait. Um, 
Whereas everybody else in this book tends to look at other people as objects. The suitors look at Penelope as an object. They, they, they eat up other people. The Cyclops eat other people. The women that Odysseus is going to meet use men as possessions. That the habit of, of humans is too often to see others as objects and not enter into that life. And one of the claims that I'm going to make here is that one of the ways that helps us into that, I think probably the most profound way, is through poetry. Because poetry is the one mode that, that does justice to our external world and also helps us enter into the internal world of others. Because that world, as we all know, is so obscure. Man is obscure to himself. I remember when Susanna and I first got married, we, I, think, I think it was early in our marriage when we had already been together for some years and and she had this comment to make to me and she she had this strength this expression of strangeness on her face she grew up with a sister and a mother and her father died so she grew up in a house with women and her comment was something like she said you are so other <laughs> she wondered what is this thing i married <laughs> That men and women are different to each other, yes? I mean, we, we are not the same. And, and learning to make a place for something other, I don't think is an easy thing. Poetry, I'm going to claim, helps us move in that direction. Because we can enter into the life of another um, that way. So this logos. There is this presence of a logos. If that logos is, is according to our belief, if that logos is Christ the Logos, the Word, by its very nature, it's Trinitarian. Its movement is to love and to be loved. The nature of everything in, in existence, everything, a flower, a, <laughs> a table, of your, a flower, a wolf, is to communicate itself and to receive something in turn. Everything in nature is reciprocal like that. If that Logos is present, and the nature of that Logos is Trinitarian, then there is something Trinitarian in everything in nature. Every self, everything, is communicating itself, receiving something in turn. That's one of the things that... Now, in the, in the Greek world, we're closer to that because the Greeks believed that everything in nature had personhood to it. It was alive with the God. Something divine was there. So we're in a very different world from our world, but it's really important to... To, um, to have some sense of, of um, how different it is. New kind of hero. We went through this last week. Odysseus is called long-suffering, long-enduring. I want to add this term tonight um, because it goes. it's really important for what we're about to look at. Wherever he goes, he brings pain. Wherever he goes people suffer. The word Odysseus we'll learn shortly because next class meeting I'm going to do a lot with language and puns and stuff that Homer does with words. The word Odysseus means distasteful, bringing pain. Wherever he goes he brings problem. And, the, and what we're going to learn is that he brings problem because he himself represents a norm. It's a little bit like Christ moving through the world. Wherever Christ went he brought problems. Always, everywhere. 
Why does he bring problems? Because he represents a norm that's not recognizable by most people. There's a goodness or a virtue, something he brings that most of us lack. Like Achilles, he's a reminder of what man can be. And what Homer's showing us in Odysseus is those qualities realized. So he's uncomfortable to be around. Um, he brings suffering. We're going to see that again and again and again. We talked about homecoming, the nostos. The, we, it's the word from which we get nostalgia. And, but it, I want to add something tonight to what I said last week. The word nostos means home, returning to home, going back to beginnings of home. The, the action of the Odyssey is very different from the action of the Iliad. The action of the Odyssey is about a man trying to get home. If we look at that really seriously, we have to say, Odysseus will not complete himself as a man. It's very different from Achilles. He will not complete himself as a man until he is reunited with his wife. So what he shows us is this, this what I'm calling this, this, this logos, that he won't complete himself until he's with another. Penelope has been holding out. This, by the way, this goes to your question, you know, is she, is she um, culpable? And let me just throw this out. Is she culpable? I don't want to answer this right now, but is she culpable? Because that's a, that's a, seems to be a really honest question about, in light of what goes on. Is she culpable or is she being prudent like Odysseus because she's been waiting for 20 years and her husband's not around? How much longer can she wait? I mean, what you could say in her favor is that what she's doing could be an expression of prudence because she may have to marry and choose a husband. So is she holding them at bay um, as a way of being prudent and looking out for her own future because she doesn't know? I, I just want to throw it. I don't want to... Because you can look at that a number of different ways. But, I, but the point I want to make here is that what we, what we learn from this couple that's, that is, is a radical change from what we saw in the, in the Iliad is a very different view of man that in this book we see that man doesn't complete himself on his own, he only completes himself with another. And that reinforces again what I said a minute ago, that what Homer's showing us is that man was meant to love and to be loved. That's in our nature, to love and be loved. That, that we, Homer, Odysseus will not complete himself, he won't realize the end of his nature, whatever that end is, until he's reunited with his wife. Man was not meant to be alone in this book. We talked about the son searching for his father. I just want to add a, a note to that. It seems to me that Telemachus is also searching for the ground of authority of his own being as a man. What's he going to become? Is he going to become like the suitors and become, grow up brutal? Is he going to grow up resigning himself to the problems around him in despair? And we've seen signs that he despairs a good bit. What's he going to do without a father? The two choices, the options he has, is either becoming brutal or resigning himself, giving up. Um, and what we see in the beginning of the, the epic is that, is that, to his credit, he begins to assert himself. He tells his mother when she, when she asks Phemios, the singer, do you remember? She says, stop your singing, it's too painful. He, said, he says to his mother, let him be. For him to stand up to his mother 
means he's separating himself from those, the feminine emotions of her mother that she doesn't want to hear because it's too painful, to say, let it be. There's something to be said for hearing that tale. Um, he speaks sharply to the suitors, and then he calls an assembly. So early in the book, we see these signs of his struggle to, to step into his role as a man, to grow into manhood. And finally, language. Um, and if, if you look at I, on one of those handouts I gave you, it has the three, it has the three poems. I can't. Um, it, It has the three homes on one side, and it has the two homes on the other. This, if you get this out, because we're going to look at this in just a second. If you look at the three homes in, in terms of poetry, if we were to write an epic on the three homes, what we'd have are these three kinds of poetry. Do you all have this sheet? It says the mean at the top. Do you all have it, the mean? Has everybody got it? Take a look at the bottom. The Odyssey affirms an anti-romantic view of life, one grounded in suffering. If we look at each of the homes in terms of a different kind of poetry, we'd find the great ideals of the ancient past exalting a different kind of suffering. If you listen to most of the lyrics today coming off the radio or TV, isn't it true that 98% of them are suffering, love lost, wounds, grieving? That's the nature of the lyric. It's just mourning. The, the epic, remember, is... is a kind of story about loss, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, that grief and suffering is at the center of our experiences. If you look at the three homes in terms of a poetry that would be written about them, you, you get these kinds of poetry. Pylos would be this kind of poetry. It would be the pathos of a heroic code, failed illusions of a heroism, how much has Nestor really learned from the past, he would go on and on and on about his battles in Troy, right? That's all he did when he was there. He kept talking about his battles. His wife does not even, ex well, she's there. But clearly, there's no, there's no reproachment. There's no togetherness between them. They don't join. He's in his own world. Um, he keeps holding up this great ideal of, the, of the, his exploits. But there's no woman in his life. She's completely outside of it. Sparta, we call the poetry, the, the pathos of sufficiency. They have everything they want. Menelaus has nothing but wealth. And he, he brought back wealth from the plundering at Troy. And you know from his own story to Telemachus that he, he acquired all of this wealth on his journeys. And when he talks about Odysseus, he said he had hoped to give Odysseus these cities and make him wealthy. So in Sparta, we have an image of sufficiency of what wealth can give. And what we see is that the home is sad. They live under the grief of these ancient memories. Um, Helen's betrayal, her answer to it is what? She takes drugs. Her answer to it is assuage her feelings by taking drugs. So neither of the sufferings is answered. Both of those families are trapped in the past and their wounds. And they can't get out. And we know from what's going on in Ithaca that Ithaca, at the beginning of the book, is trapped in its wounds. Penelope can't escape from the, the suitors are going to take over. Telemachus isn't strong enough. He, he's despairing. So if we looked at, at, at Ithaca, 
the only difference between Ithaca and Pylos and Sparta is, is I would say, it's the pathos of a heroic code, but it's transformed by suffering and a spirit of hope. Penelope is still holding out. Telemachus is still hoping to find his father. So they are trying to do something. They're trying to bring something in. So even though they're, the home is under the burdens of these disorders, lots of them caused by the war, the things that have happened as a consequence of the war, Penelope's holding out. She's still struggling. She tricked the suitors. Um, Penelope, or Telemachus is trying to find a father. There's an element of hope in that home. What, 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 what will happen, we have to read to wait. I mean, we have to see what happens at the end of the book, what's going to answer that. But, but if there's a spirit of hope prevailing, is that romantic or anti-romantic? Well, let's wait. I mean, how, we won't know until we... Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I mean, the only... By answer, definition, I would say it's romantic because I mean that's what that's if you look at the romance period, mm, well, a if it's spirit of hope but it well let's an expectation but I have a different reason for it several but it, well, well let me we, I, don't, I can't answer it right now because we're gonna in the land of the dead Odysseus is going to be given a prophecy of what's going to happen at home mm-hmm. it's not like everything is going to settle down everything's going to be okay he's going to defeat the suitors but we know from the prophecy that that won't be the end of things so if by romantic you mean everything's going to be okay, it's all going to turn out all right, it's like a Hollywood ending, you know, or, or an ending in a Shakespearean comedy. That, that's not what I meant. I mean, there just, because you, but just because you have a spirit of hope doesn't mean you take the position that everything is going to be okay. Right. It's just that everything is going to be better. Yeah, but that's why I'm saying let's wait because... because um, remember, because the, the position that I'm, that I'm offering right now is that Romantic usually means black and white, and the anti-romantic that I'm putting forward is it means there's always an element of suffering that you can't overlook or take for granted. It's always going to be present. That doesn't allow a black and white. Now, if you can if you can allow hope in that kind of world, then then we're in that world. But I don't know that we can answer it without waiting to the end to see what happens. Bob, your, your words were romantic refers to all things always changing and people wanting more. And I think that's the point that was made over here. They were changing. They were incomplete. They didn't know really right. what the status of Odysseus yeah. was. And they were hoping that in in, well, in Ithaca right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what, what are they hoping for? And will it be realized in black and white terms? Or will, will there be something to qualify it even then? So it's not romantic in the... The romantic in the sense that I used it was always wanting more black and white. You know, everything will end up happily ever after, that sort of thing. That um, Hoping can mean hope for more without the more meaning everything will be settled, everything will be happy, you'll be free of suffering. Um, at this point, all I want to do is, is make a distinction between these three homes, that there's disorder in every one of them, but there's something going on in Ithaca that we don't find in the other two. And I would call that hope that, that they're ho- Penelope's holding out still. She's still trying to be prudent. We know Odysseus is struggling to get home, even though the two are not communicating with each other. We're watching something unfold, and, and that's not taking place in the other two homes. The other two homes are trapped in the past. They're locked in. They can't get out of the suffering. So would or, you say there's only hope in Ithaca? And then there's not hope in Pylos and Sparta? 
Yeah, and by the way, remember what I'm saying. I mean, I'm, I, I myself don't want to make this a black and white. What I'm going to say eventually is, like the warriors in the Iliad, remember that circle that they all participate in honor, that code, that Pylos and Sparta offer us marriages. They're not perfect marriages, but they're still good marriages. But Homer's going to show us that there's something more that man can come to. And it's not going to be free from suffering, ever, but it will be more than what we see here. I mean, we're, we're, we're in a world, the world will line up with the Iliad. That what Odysseus is going to do is realize some things that are going to make it possible for him to bring some things to his marriage that the other men don't. And, and there will be a whole ex a range of responses to that. Some men could be brutal. The suitors would, imagine the suitors married to Penelope. I mean, you know where that's going. So, so there's a whole range of things. I think what he's showing us in Pilots and Sparta are, are two good homes. I mean, there's not violence in them. Um, but what he's going to show us at the end is that there's something more. And like with Achilles, he's showing us that Odysseus is going to do something to, to show us that there is something possible for human beings. The cost of it? going to be it's going to be as, as to me it's going to be as great as what Achilles had to do when he said I accept my death and I go back into the war that's why it's called long-suffering Odysseus long-enduring Odysseus and that's the restraint that you're talking about yeah and it's not a black and white romance it's not a modern romantic notion that if we just have this we're going to be happy that's what I mean okay let me look at let me, let's go to, let's go to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the board over in a second, but just with respect to the sexual disorders, I'm just a reminder, remember when we were in the Iliad, this is how deep it is, because I don't want, I don't want to be romantic about this. <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm being ironic, right? Sorry, right now I'm being ironic. But I, truly, I don't want to be romantic. I, I desperately do not want to be romantic here. Homer, Homer is a realist, I believe. Um, this is how deep it is. Remember in Book 14 of the Iliad, when Hera seduced Zeus. Remember she went to Aphrodite and got these perfumes and made herself more beautiful than she already was and seduced him and when he looked at her his knees melted and that was it um she, she what said his knees buckled yeah right <laughs> only in one way i think actually no probably never mind never mind don't get me going um do you remember when she went to aphrodite and she asked for her potions she said she was making a visit to the ends of the earth to visit Okeanos and Tethys. It's why I gave you the cosmology thing again. If you didn't get it, it would, if any of you don't have it, you should get it. Um, it, would, it would be interesting, I think, for, for those of you who want to just go into that background, because the cosmology is a primitive way of trying to explain the causes of things. It's a pre-scientific way. And if you look at it, they do an amazing job. I mean, they, they account for a lot. But what she says in that passage is, um, I'm going to visit Okeanos and Tethys because they have not gotten along for a long time. Do you 
remember? I read that passage. And that's Homer's way of showing that this, this disorder between the sexes is not just um, circumstantial or individual, it's mythic and universal. It's something all human beings carry. It's in our mythic past. That even the ancient gods who were at the beginning of things had this quarrel. And they've not gotten over it since. So what we, what, what we understand in terms of the, the difficulties between Adam and Eve after the fall, I mean, you can imagine the fight that they would have had after Eve did what she did with Satan and then tricked Adam and said, and then gave him the apple and Adam caved. He, I mean, Milton has done an amazing job in that in some ways. Um, Eve was tricked. Adam wasn't. Right? Satan tricked, this is biblical too, Satan tricked Eve. Adam disobeyed God knowing. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons for the... Um, extenuations with the humans. The, the angels chose to revolt. There's no, there's no um, redemption for them, the ones who chose. They chose, that was it. Eve was tricked. So there's an extenuation there. That's, that's why it's important <coughs> to understand that because there's a reason Christ came back for us. We were deceived. But the interesting thing about the biblical treatment of that is Adam did, was not deceived. He chose to disobey God because he didn't want to lose Eve. So that that um, that excessive love, you can call it, of a woman over God is already present there in the fall. So the ancient Greeks had this sense of some mythic dimension long before we ever get into historical time that something took place that led to this estrangement between man and woman and that man and woman bear these disorders, these struggles now. So they were at the center of the Iliad, we know that. Helen left her husband, her, Helen and Paris go off. The Trojan War is fought over that, a, a, a violation of a marriage. Thousands and thousands of men are killing each other over a sexual issue. Um, men treat women as booty, we saw that, they take them. The, the quarrel between Agamemnon and and Achilles um, had to do with a woman, the possession of a woman. So right at the, at the root of our existence are these disorders and the potential for problems, that there's something difficult, strained in the relationship between men and women. And we see it, in, <laughs> we see it comically between Zeus and Hera. Remember in that passage where Zeus gets angry at Hera and, and Athena and he says, um, um, how did he put it? Um, he, he gets really furious with Athena, his daughter, but says there's no point in getting angry with Hera because she's his wife and she's going <laughs> to... So even the gods, even the gods, after Zeus has to struggle with his wife in these matters. So the sexual disorders are not a small thing and they are at the center of this book because what Odysseus is going to confront on his... Um, adventures are largely feminine archetypes. And I, and I think I've already made the point, but I'll repeat it. There's no way he will get home to answer the problems at home if he does not come to terms with women. And, and I think it's important 
I don't think I can stress that enough. Just think about the way in which men look at women in the Iliad. If that's what men are going to take home, what kind of homes will there be? If Homer's showing us that there's something man is more capable of in his marriage, he's got to change. He's got to learn something that he doesn't know in the Iliad. That's clear, yeah. So in, in the, most of the adventures have to do with the power of women and the variety, the, the, the various forms that that power takes and what Odysseus is going to have to learn to understand about woman if he's to come home and, and he's to have something different in his marriage from the kind of marriages that would have existed before or that we see in Pylos and Sparta. So let me just let me give the plot and then... Um, So the plot. To, to try to straighten this out, to make this clear, here's, here's the Iliad. Yeah? Remember that the Iliad began in the ninth and a half year, that it begins with Paris at and Helen running off. So for nine and a half years, the Achaeans and Trojans have been fighting a war to reclaim Helen and, and in their mind, right a wrong. They feel wrong and injustice has been done and they want to answer it. And we saw how much that's a part of the Greek character in a way that's not true of the East, that the East are more tribal, more familial. In the Odyssey, we've got a, um, a different plot in some ways, but um, one that's similar in amazing ways. This one also opens in the ninth and a half year. Here, remember, Troy is sacked. We don't see it. We, we get a description of it from Demodokos, the Phaeacian scene. But it opens in the ninth and a half year with Odysseus at Calypso's island, Ogygia. He's here. He's been at her island for nine and a half years. When the book opens, the gods are in a council. That's when Zeus says, men blame us for all our evils, that men don't accept responsibility. They have free will. They do these things. They bring, themselves, these, they bring these things on themselves, but they blame us. Um, Athena is the one who says, how are the gods going to love us when... Odysseus has been this man who's a good man. Why, why do bad things happen to good people? That ancient question. It's introduced here at the beginning of the book. How can God, how can humans love us when we see this virtuous man suffering all this time? So he, Zeus sends Athena to Telemachus to help him and Hermes to Calypso's island. He's the messenger god to free Odysseus. Um, and he leaves builds a raft and he leaves, Poseidon trashes it, and he comes to the island of Scaria. And it's here at Scaria that he recalls his adventures, what happened during these years. And remember, in the middle of them, 
He has a year with Circe. So we know that of the nine and a half years that he's been gone, one year here, eight years, that nine of those years are spent under the power of Circe and Calypso. And they're two different archetype images. They're very, very, very different in character. Um, while he's at Scaria, he tells his story of his wanderings. Okay. And after he finishes, the Phaeacians take him home. And the last part of the book, the last third of the book, deals with his return home and his effort to kill the suitors, to recover order in his home. Um, and this is, recover is not quite the right word. He's going to restore order, but he's a changed man. He's, he's not the same man he was when he left. Now, a couple of things that are really important here to keep in mind. It's really interesting um, that when, when he tells the stories, the stories take place while he's in the Phaeacian community. In the Phaeacian community, he's, this is a place of art and technique. I'll come to that in a second. He tells his stories here. Um, the only episode that stands outside these stories, in a sense, is Calypso. And that's where he begins. And I think that's Homer's way of showing that there's something more extraordinary to Calypso than even Circe or anything he faces on the other, on the other episodes. That we, we have to take seriously what she is in the, in the feminine soul. Is that clear? What she is in regards to in its inner self, it, what she is, what what she represents in itself. Like, Are we like lust or yeah, like that. What, okay. Right. Yeah. But the point I want to make right now is that when the, when the story starts, he's on her island. He's been there for eight years. Okay. When he comes to Scaria to the Phaeacians, he's going to tell his story and he'll go back. Um, she's outside of that whole thing. There's something greater. She stands out the way... That is, Homer, Homer could have arranged this so he could have come to the Phaeacians and, and she could have been included as one of the episodes here. I'm just saying she stands outside and we, you, know, you can overlook that, but I don't think we should. I think she's extraordinary. And one, the most obvious piece of evidence in support of that is he's, he's with her for eight years. That's Homer's way of showing how powerful this thing is that Odysseus has got to deal with in her. Okay, let me, let me, let's go through some of the, some of the things here. Before we do this, take, take a look. You all have this sheet, right, with the, the mean? Just take a look at this quickly before I look at the, before I look at the uh, adventures. We've already seen that, um, let me put it this way. At the end of the book, something's going to happen that shows that Ithaca the marriage in Ithaca represents something as great in the marital order as um, Kleos in the warrior code. Right? Kleos meant everything in the Iliad. It's that, that intrinsic order of the soul that a human being could come to in a condition of war. 
What happens here between Penelope and Odysseus, um, I think represents for Homer the full possibility that a man and woman can struggle at least to try to achieve. So that if we keep in mind the, the three homes in the beginning and then set them next to everything else, all the other cities, that we see two things. That the two extremes on both sides of Odysseus's wanderings, if we think of this as his wanderings, are the Phaeacians and the Cyclops. And remember in the opening description, Homer describes the, the Phaeacians and the, and the um, Cyclops as living next to each other, and both of them were favored of the gods. That was the opening description. Take a look at this, this sheet I gave you with the two circles. I just want to read some of these. I don't want to go into them, but leave these with your mind. The Phaeacians are a people close to Hephaestus. Hephaestus is the god of craft, the god of art. He makes things, right? Near the gods in origins, no man can come bringing warlike. They're removed from people. They have nothing to do with people with bows and arrows. No concern with a bow, only ships. Graceless speech. That's Nausicaa saying to Odysseus, be careful because they can be insolent men. It's as if these people are so removed from the peoples of men that they don't know human courtesies. Just, and you know that one of the men insults Odysseus when, they, when they're doing the games. Graceless speech, insolent men, no patience, glorious architecture. When Odysseus looks at it, it's, it, it's in splendor. It's glorious. Women skilled in weaving, wisdom. Demodocus tells stories. They play games. There's the one man who makes the insult. Antinous says of his men, I've given you the line so you can look at all of this. The, the Phaeacians excel in everything. Everything about the Phaeacians gives evidence of artifice. And let me just see if I can find this um, at the end. Um, what book? Turn to, let's, I think it's going to be eight. Look at eight. This is just before um, Odysseus goes home. Where the um, hmm. sure, give me a minute. Hmm, page one thirty five, let me see. This is one place, but there's others as well. Um, 135 at the bottom. Tell me your land, your neighborhood, and your city so that our ships, straining with their own purpose, can carry you there. For there are no steersmen among the Phaeacians, neither are there any steering oars for them, such as other ships have. But the ships themselves understand men's thoughts and purposes, and they know all the cities of men and all the fertile fields, and with greater speed they cross the gulf of the salt sea, huddled under a mist and cloud, nor is there ever any fear that they may suffer damage or come to destruction. He says, have no worry about getting home. 
If you've been reading, you know that what happens to the ship after they drop Odysseus off? Do you know? Poseidon turns it into a stone. Good. It turns it into a mountain. Now, how characterize the the uh, Cyclops? Um, we're going to look at that episode here, but Cyclops, um, page. Let's see, one forty-three, somewhere in there. Um, when he comes to the island of the fire or the Cyclops, this is one forty. The Cyclops who are putting all their trust in anymore. These these seem to be pious creatures. They put all their trust in God. What we learn is the fact that they put all of their trust in God is a sign of their presumption, that they're presuming on him. Neither plow within their hands. They don't work. They, they presume on God. Neither plow with their hands nor plant anything, but all grows for them without seed planting, without cultivation, wheat and barley, and also the grapevine which yields for them wine of strength, and it is Zeus rain that waters for them. They take advantage of all God's blessings, but they don't work themselves. These people have no institutions, no meetings for councils, rather they make their habitations in caverns hollowed among the peaks of the high mountains, and each one is the law for his own wives and children and cares nothing about the others. Across from them is a little island that's fertile, that would produce bountiful things. And they make no effort to go over there. So it's like there are resources all around them. They just won't make an effort. Now, hold on. What's, what's Homer showing us? Scaria is a place where, um, what to call it? I'm going to call, <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. I'm going to call it. Suburbia. <laughs> it is a place in which everything is so settled, so ideal, all the fruits of labor, that they don't worry about people coming in and causing problems in their communities. It's a place defined by techne. Art. The word techne means making. Their ships go across the sea like something following the thoughts of men. They don't even labor. Um, they're like modern America as a technological people. Everything they do shows this mastery of nature. They tell stories, they're cultivated, they're, well, you know, they're mannered until people come in. But nobody visits them. They're removed from the world. So, so they're not engaged in the things that Odysseus is learning from them. At the other extreme are these brute figures, very masculine. They have one eye, which signifies what? Evil. It seems to me they're, they're literal-minded. They don't have a depth fit. They're, they're literal. They just see. And we'll see this in a moment because of what the Cyclops does. So here you have um, a city in which everybody's cultivated. They master. They have all the things of that today we would associate with having money, wealth, and beauty, and techne. In the Cyclops, you have presumption. They're mere opposite. They're the same thing in reverse. They're removed from the world as, as opposites. And what we're, what we're looking at finally is something here, because it's only here that this, the realization of this potential that I'm talking about is going to occur. 
What's the problem with mastering nature in this world? If your technology is so great that things can, can, um, can accomplish an act as if it's following your thoughts, I, I think of computers. You know, the way a computer just begins to operate, matching up to my mind, what I want my mind to do, and I'm, I'm in India, or I've got a paper, or you know, whatever I call up, it's there. What's the difficulty with mastering nature? Hmm? You don't need God. Not only do you not need God to master nature, yeah. huh? You don't have to seek him either. I mean, there's nothing. You're mastering. You're you're, pres you're presuming to master gods, because where are the gods? To master nature is, is an act of real presumption, because you're going to be putting yourself above God. What happens to the ship when it docks and drops Odysseus off? It's turned into a mountain. It's restored. It's interesting to me. It's restored to its natural condition. I mean, you, you cannot presume. What, and, and if any of you have followed the, uh, what are the Jurassic Park stories? I mean, I love those stories because they're like a reworking of this when men presumes to go back and master nature and nature always rises up and reasserts itself. That there's something there humans have to be careful of because remember in the scheme of things for a Christian, God made nature, that's, his, that's where he's present. We make cities. I'm going to come to this next week and talk about the cities for a few minutes because this is all about the cities of men. Man has to be careful in what he does with nature because that is God's creation. The danger of the modern mind is using technology to master it, to think that we can overcome it, to do these things. And what happens over and over and over again? Chaos theory. Yeah, right. Yeah. Some kind of catastrophe, usually. So let's take a look at some of the adventures. Go back to the uh, very beginning of the adventures on page um, 138. So when Odysseus is with the Phaeacians, Demodocus starts telling a story about the Trojan War. Um, Odysseus is covered in a hood and he begins to cry. Alcinous um, sees it and he, and he asks for a break and they go out and play the games and the one guy insults him and he shouldn't and pays for it. And we see this great mastery again and, and following that they do a dance and if you, if you remember when they describe the dancer, the, Homer describes the dancer as if there was no gravity, as if they defied gravity. They have this mastery of nature. They do things so well. Um, they're so artful in everything they do. When they return, Demodocus, remember he's blind, and we think Homer is blind. So in some ways, it's as if Homer's giving us an image of himself, the poet, singing in this court community, telling these tales. He tells the story, the comic story, it's a comedy of Aphrodite and um, making love with Harry's and Hephaestus tricking them and getting them caught in his wet techne. Ares is much stronger, but Hephaestus is much craftier. He's the god of craft. He catches him, and there's that funny exchange between Apollo and, and Poseidon when one of them says, or Hermes, and says, oh, if I could only be tied up um, <laughs> in those chains with Aphrodite, you know, he wouldn't want to be set free. And, and they all laugh. Um, and then Demodocus turns to the Trojan War, and then he recounts that that episode when 
the Trojan horse came in and Odysseus and the men went into the city and he recalls going to um, Helen's house because she's married to somebody else and this is after Hector's been killed. And he begins weeping again. And Altinus says it and says, stop. And he asks, finally, after all this time, he's been bathed, he's been fed, he's been celebrated. Now he asks him who he is. And I think one of the things we're, we're meant to ask ourselves, is this the same man because he's watching the story, is he the same man who was at war? You know, he's, he's been almost nine years, nine and a half years away from that war now. He's been on Calypso's Island for eight. He's undergone all these voyages. But at this, it's at this point that he names himself, and when he names himself, he tells his story. Now, I think this is important as a, as a prelude, a condition for getting home, because it's at this point that he has to step outside of himself to tell a story about himself. So I think we're meant to see this as a moment of reflection, that he's learning something, he's, and he's using words to tell the story. And I think what he does is amazing. <coughs> Once we start looking at it, we're not gonna, we just started tonight, but notice what happens on 138, he starts. He left Troy, what's his condition when he leaves Troy? Middle of page 138. From Ilion the wind took me and drove me ashore at Ismaros by the Caconians. I sacked their city. What else would a soldier do who's been killing people for 10 years? He's still a sacker of cities. He's still inclined to violence. Take a man out of a war situation now. Bring him home. What's it going to be like in his family? I mean, imagine that, particularly if you've been away for nine years killing people. You know, we talk about stress disorders and now, but imagine nine years. Homer's so aware of what's going on. He's so clear about what's going on. I sacked their city, killed their people. There I was for the light of food escaping and urgent, but they were greatly foolish and would not listen. And there and then much wine. The men are plundering, drinking, they're doing what soldiers, and, and increasingly, the men are going to drop off. He's going to be losing men at every adventure. Next adventure, page 139, are the lotus eaters. He meets these people who give them drugs. What happens to his men? But any of them who ate the honey-sweet fruit of lotus was unwilling to take any message back or go on away. They, they forgot their way home. How hard would it be if you've been at war for 10 years to come to a city like this and turn away from drugs? I mean, just imagine. So interesting. The second voyage, the lotus eaters have they take their toll on Odysseus's men. Page one forty. From there, he went. He comes to the Cyclops. I want to. I want to just look at a couple of things here, and then um, and then see if we can stop for tonight and just leave some time for your questions. Um, he chose some of his men and went into the Cyclops cave. I don't want to go into all of this. Let me just make a few brief comments. This seems to me one of the most reckless things he does. He's advised not to do it. He will lose men here. Virgil will get really upset with this scene. What Virgil does with this is really amazing because Virgil's take on Odysseus is that he was too reckless. He was too cavalier, too, wish <coughs> too curious, wanting to explore when it actually puts his men in danger. He's going to lose some men here. <coughs> The Cyclops comes in, this is Polyphemus, page 144, 
So I spoke, but he answered me in pitiless spirit. <clears throat> Stranger, you are a simple fool or come off from far when you tell me to avoid the wrath of gods or fear them. <clears throat> the Cyclops do not concern themselves over Zeus or the Aegis, nor any of the rest of the blessed gods, since we are far better than they. And for fear of the hate of Zeus, I would not spare you. He has no fear of the God. Bible, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They have no fear of the gods. But tell me, so I may know, where did you get put your well-made ship when you came? Nearby or far off? I mean, he'd be, have to be pretty stupid to answer that question. Um, Odysseus tells him on page 146 that his name is nobody. The Cyclops says, tell me your name, for the grain-giving land of the Cyclops also yields them wine of strength, and it's Zeus's rain that waters it for them. They so take the gods for granted, but this comes from where ambrosia and nectar flow in abundance. He asks his name. Go down a few lines. Cyclops, you ask me for my famous name. I will tell you then. But you must give me a guest gift as you promised. Nobody is my name. My father and mother call me nobody, as do all of the others who are my companions. So I spoke, and he answered me in pitiless spirit. Then I will eat nobody after his friends. I mean, that shows that there's some sense of irony in the Cyclops anyway, because he's going to eat nothing, like he's being a good guy. But what he does is pick up a couple of men, crush their brains out, and eat them. But when, so Odysseus gets Polyphemus drunk. And when he gets him drunk, he gets his men to get this beam, sharpen it to a point, and then put it into a fire to temper it, on page 147. When the beam of olive green as it was, was nearly at the point of catching fire and glowed terribly incandescent, then I brought it close up from the fire and my friends about me stood fast. Some great divinity breathed courage into us. They seized the beam of olive sharp at the end and leaned on it into the eye while I from above leaning my weight onto it twirled it like a man with a brace and bit who bores into a ship timber and his men from underneath grasping the strap on either side whirl it and it bites resolutely deeper. So seizing the fire pointed hardened timber, we twirled it in his eye and the blood boiled around the hot point so that the blast and scorch of the burning ball singed all his eyebrows. I could read that again and again. We could spend it, I could read that for the next 15 minutes and still enjoy it. <laughs> Must be something, I'd, I'd love to say, you know this, in the Iliad when he's describing eyeballs coming off of a spear. Homer is a real, he's, he doesn't avoid anything. He's true to what's in front of him. He's trying to be faithful to what is. He loses his eye, and you know what happens then. Odysseus and his men hide under the sheep in the morning when the Cyclops lets the sheep out and they escape. Um, and it's at that point um, that Odysseus gives him his real name and then the Cyclops remembers that he had been warned that somebody would come. This is one of the prophecies coming to fulfillment. Just one, because there's a number of them um, that take place. And then Odysseus um, goes on. Now, hold on just for a second. Do you have the sheet with all the prophecies that I gave you? You should have a sheet. Do you? Do you? What's it look like? Yes, it looks it's like red and blue. Can you hold it up? List, <coughs> list of prophecies. Very quickly, turn to page book 10. 
lines 80. I want to look at the Lestrigonese just quickly. Um, so we've seen a number of the adventures. Um, Aeolus is the bag of wind. Odysseus and his men come offshore. They're offshore to Ithaca. They're right there at Ithaca. And um, they open a bag thinking that the bag has got um, booty in it. So out of greed, they open it and let out the winds. They were not supposed to open it, and they're blown offshore. So they were right offshore um, and, and lose their homecoming. They're back out at sea. The next one is the Lestrigonese. I just want to um, touch on this and then quickly sum up and then leave some time for some questions. On page 153, they come to the land of the Lestrigonese on um, about line 112. But when they entered the glorious house, they found there a woman as big as a mountain peak, and the sight of her filled them with horror. At once she summoned Phoebus Antiphates, her husband, from their assembly, and he devised dismal death against them. He snatched up one of my companions and prepared him for dinner, but the other two darted away in flight and got back to my ship. The king raised the cry through the city, hearing him the powerful Astrigones came swarming up from every direction, tens of thousands of them, and not like men, like giants. There, standing along the cliffs, pelted my men with man-sized boulders, and a horrid racket went up in the ships of men being killed and ships being smashed to pieces. They speared them like fish and carried them away for their joyless feasting. Um, Odysseus had 12 ships before this. He says below, Gladly my ship and only nine, mine, and out from the overhanging cliffs to open water. He's got one ship. He's lost all 12 ships, except his own at this point. So he's lost all of his men. He will go on to Circe's Island, the land of the dead, the siren, skill, and Curtis, and then the island of Helios, where he, where he will lose the rest of his companions, and then he'll go home. One last thing to, to tie this point up. When he gets to Circe's island, Her Hermes meets him and tells him to take a molly. Hermes meets him. And he tells him with this molly plant, he can protect himself against Circe's wilds. Okay? And she's surprised when she doesn't have his, her power over him, but Odysseus agrees to stay for a year, and then he's the year. Two quick things here, and then I... Um, let me just make a couple of comments on, on these adventures because we have to get on. Um, the Lestrigonese queen is described as being as large as a mountain. And I'd like you, I'm, I'm going to ask you to think, if you disagree with this, disagree, but let me, let me suggest this. What we see in the Lestrigonese queen is a, a woman who's described as large as a mountain as if her sphere of influence was great. And we see what happens when they're there. All of these other Lestrigonese people come and cause havoc and destroy almost all of Odysseus' ship except his own. So in the Lestrigonese queen, we have an image of a, of a woman who's described in terms of a mountain. She's, and I, I think we're meant to think about how great her sphere of influence is. Circe, when he comes there, you know, she turns men into swine. She makes pigs of them. Her, her, um, her fenced-in areas are full of men who've been transformed into wolves and, and pigs and other things. 
When Odysseus comes to Calypso's island, she's described as being close to the navel, the navel of um, the divine, the navel of all the waters. Think about that. This is on page 28, the navel of all the waters. It's as if she's the umbilical cord to the divine. The navel, right? The umbilical cord. She offers Odysseus immortality. Hermes, when he's asked to go there, says he doesn't want to go there because the gods never go there. It's out of the way. She lives in a cave. Circe lives in a cave. Both women weave. Okay? Circe turns men into swine, animals. Calypso offers Odysseus immortality. Um, um, that is to raise him above his human nature. So what do we see in those two women and in the Strigonis queen? The Strigonis queen, I think, clearly is an image of this enlarged sphere of influence. Just keep this in mind before we go home to Penelope, because my question is going to be next when we start next week, where do we find all of these women figures at home? What is Homer doing? And I'm going to suggest they're all related to Penelope in some way. Um, Circe turns men into swine. She turns them into animals. Odysseus only gets free of her power because of the help that Hermes gives him with the molly, and it's a, it's a plant in nature. Um, he can't get free of Calypso without Hermes' help. She offer, Calypso offers him immortality. It seems to me that Circe's an image of that power in women that has the effect of reducing men to their animal nature, the sexual nature in, in its lowest animal terms. Calypso is an image of what's immortal in the beauty of women. And I can't say that strongly enough because I think we screwed up in our world. But if you think about TV and the way women are presented on TV and the beauty, you, you shouldn't have a problem. Um, they, they wouldn't do that unless there was something subliminal in that power, so great that it could have the influence that it does to sell. What I'm suggesting here is that in Calypso we're given an image of of a transcendent quality of beauty and the power, the extraordinary power that that has over man. And if that isn't clear enough, just think about this. Beauty is one of St. Thomas's five transcendentals. It's associated with Christ as the image of God. The beauty, order, proportion, loveliness are all the qualities of beauty. And remember, if it's a transcendent, it means it's that in which we find our rest. When a man looks at a woman with that kind of ideal, whatever we want to call it, when he, when he is overcome by the beauty of a woman, I think it's because he sees in that beauty a longing for the rest that will take place sexually in the sexual act, but that also takes place in, in the experience of that beauty. I don't know if that makes sense, but I... But I really, I deeply believe that. I mean, some of you may challenge that, but beauty has the same effect as a final end. It promises rest. Nausicaa is that kind of an image in Phaeacia. She's young, youthful, promising, you know. So what Homer's showing us is our two aspects of the feminine, the, 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 that power in a woman to awaken the sexual in man, to, to reduce him to a beast sexually, but also that, that power in a woman to, 
to tempt him to, to something beyond himself, to what I'm going to call something transcendent in the nature of beauty itself. So that, um, and we're going to see other things in some of the other feminine creatures, but at least at this point we've, we've got that. Um, hold on one second. Just two things and then I'm going to stop and take your questions. Next week we're going to look at the homecoming and his dealing with the suitors. He's going to kill them all. Before we do that, I want to look at the land of the dead because he cannot get home until he deals with the afterlife. He's got to come to terms. He's going to meet his mother there. He's going to meet Achilles. And um, it's going to be interesting. He's going to meet all the queens of the dead. Not one of those queens will remember her husband. Athena is going to say something about that, about the nature of women. Remember, what's the one thing on Penelope's mind? Her husband. What's the one thing on Odysseus's mind? His wife. He wants to get home. He's, he's, for eight years, he's been mourning on Calypso's island. He wants to get home. His natural destiny is not immortal. It's not to be above man. His natural end as a human being is human. He wants to be with his wife. But he's struggling with these things. The sexual, the what we can call the tendency to idealize something, you know, in another... So I want to look at the land of the dead, um, take a look at the queens, read that stuff closely, look at what Agamemnon says about women. <laughs> Remember, you all know what happened to him, right? His wife killed him when he gets home. So, so this thing about the sexual relationships and what we learn about each other is very much to the front of everything that's going on here. But anyway, we'll look at the land of the dead and then I want to look at the end with the suitors and and I think we'll end next week. We'll, I know this is too short, and I'm really sorry for that. We should take a couple of more class meetings, but we've got to get on. So anyway, let me stop there. Any, any, any questions? We have a few minutes for questions. <coughs> they wouldn't be good questions. You want to take up your thing about vitalism and nature and tables moving and... <laughs> I guess one of my questions is that I wonder when I hear you speak about the nature of marriage, the nature of people, there is a tendency, and, and I don't know if this is correct or not. So, one of the problems of looking at anything old and ancient is that it's very difficult for us to take away that which we know now, which they didn't. Right. As in, they didn't have scientific method, they didn't have the romantic movement, they didn't, that was completely foreign to them. Yeah. Concepts that we take for granted, yeah. they never knew. So when you look at something like marriage and you say this is a good marriage or a bad marriage, that's how we look at it. Back then, it, it was what it was. So it wasn't necessarily, now there are some things, you know, you can look at evil and good and other things like that, but is some of what you're saying tempered by modern thought versus ancient thought? Well, when you look at it. Yeah. And, 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 and if it is, great. Uh, that's a, that's a really personal, I mean, it's direct, you know, I think from things that I said, that I do everything I can to, to read this as it is. Um, and if we took the cave, Plato's cave analogy, it seems to me that that's a timeless allegory that we can apply that forever. Um, um, but but I, always, I always try to read it as I believe it is. And, but the, the answer to the first part of your question is for me, I don't do, I mean, I don't look at that. I, I believe strongly in the value of the allegory of the cave. And when I read Homer, I'm shocked at how much he seems to penetrate 
things about our own life today. I think the Iliad is really relevant as a critique of our world. I think what he has to say about marriage and romanticism or anti um, is, is, in fact, I would say in some ways it's even more important for us to know that. But let me put it more broadly. Remember in, in Plato's cave, the challenge that he put to poets, remember, all the, all the shadows on the cave wall were formed by people with books. So in his mind, that was Freud, Darwin, Homer, whoever it was. Um, that that's a, that's a timeless image. It will be good forever, if, if it's true. And his critique was that nobody would be allowed into that ideal city who did not know universal, timeless things. If that's true, it means that what, if, if there is that quality, you, you, you may disagree, but if, if there is that quality to Homer, that it is universal and timeless, then what he has to say about marriage could be as helpful to us today in attempting to understand ourselves as it would have been to Homer's audience in 800 BC. I believe that myself. Um, but otherwise I wouldn't do this. I mean, you know, I, the, one of the reasons I'm offering this is because I, I think there's something prophetic in it that helps us see Christ now. Um, I'm going to try to make that point next week when we close to, to try to suggest some of the affinities between Odysseus and um, Christ the way I did with... Um, let me read this as a close. If, 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 there, if, if, if I can take 30 seconds, unless there's a pressing question. I meant to read this, but it's just time so pressed. One of the things that Homer's showing us is Odysseus that lines up with Achilles. If you, if, you, if you accept, you may have questions about my reading of Achilles, but if you see Achilles as, as a person realizing this intrinsic nature to the soul, that there is an inherent nature, a certain order to the soul, and it's important for us to try to fulfill it, and the conditions of that are pretty stark. The same thing's true of Odysseus in another context. What's true for Odysseus is this. What Odysseus is showing us is the... Is the the fulfillment of norms in a man's nature that are understood in a context outside of war. Those norms are justice, prudence, endurance, what's the other one? Temperance. One of the great themes that runs through the Iliad is the ravenous belly. I meant to put it up in the, I'll, I'll draw a picture of the soul next time again. You hear it every 10 pages, he talks about the ravenous belly, the overbearing belly that as humans, we have these endless appetites. We keep wanting. The suitors want it. Everybody here. Cyclops eats them in. Um, the women are possessive. People want and want and want and want. So how to quiet those? So let me read this. Odysseus learns on his adventures that cities are all different. The people making up those cities are all human, but they display a great variety of dispositions, traits, or inclinations indicating a great freedom to our nature, but also different views on ways and means of realizing that nature and different degrees of being committed to realizing it. You can become brutal, you can become violent, you can become passive, you can feel sorry for yourself, you can get angry. There's a whole assortment of things you can do in response to whatever circumstances we're in. Um, and, and we've seen some of the differences, Pylos, Sparta, all of the cities that Odysseus encounters, the people that he meets there. Like all, here's, the, here's the point of this. Like all of the warriors of the Iliad in relation to Achilles, 
These various peoples all participate in man's nature, but they can realize their potential or not by their openness to being, to all aspects of nature, to the gods, their willingness to change or adjust from what they learn. Now, how well do people learn? Do the suitors listen to the gods? Do they, are they learning from mistakes? They're not. What about the people that Odysseus meets? Will, will Polyphemus learn from being blinded? I doubt it. Um, the the, the uh, Lestrigides people, or you know, all of them. So many of them were warned that he would come. He's a norm. Did anybody take that norm seriously? Did they change? Most of the people don't. Like the Kleos that the warriors of the Iliad can realize if they give themselves up, the virtues are those potential goods in men and women that they can realize, this is some intrinsic potential that we have all of us, if they will work at them and listen to the gods, they can become prudent, just, temperate, courageous. Those are the natural virtues. Aristotle's going to go on. Where did Aristotle get them? Right here. Odysseus is all of those. He's prudent. He knows exactly what to do. He's having to learn from all of his mistakes. And, and not only learn, but apply them when he gets home. Um, like the Kleos of the warriors, the virtues are those potential goods in men and women that they can realize if they will work at them and listen to the gods. Think about how this is long-suffering Odysseus. He's been at this for ages before he gets home. If they will work at them and listen to the gods, they can become prudent, just, temperate, courageous. And if they will avoid presumption, taking others for granted, using them as objects for themselves. This is what we see people doing in all of the cities. The suitors don't work. Serious question. They use Odysseus. They're using his home. They eat up everything. The maidservants are doing the same things. They're supposed to be there serving. You can't have a better example of presumption. They're taking everybody for granted. And the home is, they're lo the home is going into bankruptcy. It's just losing. It's, be it's being depleted. Um, it's a very serious question whether the maidservants do. They're all going to die at the end. They all use each other for their own comfort, for their own comfort to get ahead. So what we're learning is that Odysseus is an image of what man can become in a marriage from learning from these things. And part of them, I've tried to go over here, some of the archetype figures. He's, he's, gonna have, he's got to learn to deal with the, with the brute, the literal mindedness of men that's imaged in the Cyclops. Wait. He's got to learn to deal with that when he gets home because that's, that's the suitors. The suitors, if you were to look at the spiritual soul of the suitors, they would be one-eyed cyclops. I hope you see that. They're brutal men. They don't see. They're one-dimensional in the way they understand. The, the maidservants, Penelope, as women, what, I mean, look at the, Circe wants to possess Odysseus. Hermes, I mean, Calypso wants to possess, she wants to have him. There's something possessive in both of those women. They don't want to let him go. The, the gods have to help him get away. So Odysseus is learning something about the nature of man, and he's learning something about the nature of women. There's no way he can come home to have a, a marriage that Homer's showing man is capable of having, but the cost of it is, I'd say, it's as great for Odysseus as it is for Achilles. So what Homer's showing us are these, the the, the, this greatness that man is capable of in the natural order. Can he make heaven in a Christian world? Absolutely not. 
but he can fulfill these potentials that he has in the natural. Set this against a Protestant worldview. In the Protestant worldview, man is absolutely corrupted. He has no free will. He can't do anything good without grace. That is not a Catholic view. If you remember Dante, the, the natural virtues we are capable of being, the natural virtues, this is our belief as Catholics, the natural virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, courage, courage. That those are things we're capable of. We're capable of doing this great good here on earth within the natural order. Will that get us to heaven? Absolutely not. But they are splendid virtues. That's why in the Catholic view, nature and grace are meant to line up. In the modern world, nature has been obliterated, blighted, gone. That natural, We have no way back into the natural order in our world. Unless we find a way into it, that's you know, I mean I'm I'm offering I mean to go back to see what you know what some people have thought about this, but let me let me sorry okay um, okay you all have a good week enjoy enjoy what's left of the debates if such a thing is possible. Right, right. Wait, let me turn this. Let me just. I don't know how to use this thing. Stop.